Amen. Thank you, Sue. Good morning. We're in James chapter 1. We're going to get all the way from verse 2 to 4. Because I'm anointed of the Lord. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we yield our hearts to the authority of this word. Lord, in Jesus' name, we bow in submission to the truth spoken here. We acknowledge this is the breath of God. We open our our eyes, our ears, the deep places of our soul to receive from you this morning. Minister in this house, Lord. This isn't something we do just to go through the motions. This isn't a, a cultural tradition, God. We need to encounter your voice, your power, and your ministry this morning. We can't go on without it, Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And all the saints say, Amen. Amen. I told you before of of David Brainerd. He's probably the most important missionary on our continent, without a doubt. He was a missionary to the American Indians. He died at the age of 29. My favorite story of his life was that he was a student at Yale. And in order to be a pastor in that time, it was actually illegal to be a pastor without a degree from one of the major seminaries. And so he was a student at Yale, and someone asked him about one of his professors, and he said, that man has no more grace than a chair. In other words, that guy ain't saved, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And David Brainerd was expelled for this comment and groveled, for lack of better words, to try to get back into seminary, and he was never admitted again. And so he actually uh, was invited to become a missionary to the American Indians after being blocked to kind of fulfill his dream of being a pastor. And what we know about him is for the large majority of his adult life, he struggled with tuberculosis. Many occasions he's on his way to preach to some native tribe and he's coughing up blood the whole way. He tells us in his diary on several occasions, you can get his diary. He actually died in the home of Jonathan Edwards. There's, uh, and Jonathan Edwards compiled his diary, which became a bestseller. And many missions organizations throughout the history of our continent would not let a missionary go on the field without a copy of David Brainerd's diary. It was that important. Um, and so you can get his diary. You should have it. I loaned my copy. I'm just kidding. I gave my copy to Seth, who gave it away. <laughs> so buy me one, too, if you can. Um, But in his diary, he said this on Wednesday, April 13th, he said, struggling with depression, my heart was overwhelmed within me. I verily thought I was the meanest, vilest, most helpless, guilty, ignorant, benighted creature alive. And yet I I know what God had done for my soul. At the same time, though sometimes I was assaulted with damping doubts and fears, whether it is possible for such a wretch as I to be in a state of grace. So, um, tuberculosis, alone, in storms, traveling in the middle of nowhere. Brainerd grew up in a city, in a kind of cosmopolitan area. He was used to shops and food. And now he's through the storms, coughing up blood, wrestling with depression, feeling like he's the worst scum of the earth, yet he keeps preaching. He seriously wrestled with loneliness. On some occasions, he's going to say things like, I don't know if I even want to go on. I'm so tired of having no one to talk to. May 8, 1744, he wrote this in his diary. My heart sometimes was ready to sink with the thought of my work and going alone again in the wilderness. So in the face of tuberculosis, depression, 
and loneliness, David Brainerd, in his 20s, a young man, never quits, perseveres, spends his life in prayer and fasting. I read in his diary this week, it's his birthday, and he's fasting through his birthday, believing God to do significant things in his ministry. So through physical pain, emotional pain, sorrow, he just keeps preaching this gospel at the age of 29, dies in the home of Jonathan Edwards. And again, his diary becomes uh, mandatory for missionaries. People like Hudson Taylor, uh, who is an incredible missionary, they, they, they coveted the diaries of David Brainerd. Now, what we find in Brainerd's life is trial after trial after trial met with perseverance and God pouring out his spirit on Brainerd, using Brainerd as he just resolves to march on to the glory of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this, Satan knows how useful a consistent follower of the Savior is and how much damage to Christ's cause an inconsistent Christian may bring. And therefore, he empties out all of his arrows from his quiver in order that he may wound, even to death, the soldier of the cross. So Spurgeon says, Satan knows how useful in the hands of, a master, of the master is a Christian who perseveres, and also how useful in the hands of hell is a Christian who's inconsistent. And so Satan onslaughts the servant of God, with trial after trial after trial. I thought so much in the last couple of weeks of this encounter where um, James and John and their mother, remember she comes to Jesus, James and John brothers, not the James we're reading about today, comes to Jesus and says, can my son sit at your right hand and at your left? Do you remember the story? And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup of which I'm to drink? And they say, Yes. And Jesus essentially says, um, you're, you're not quite able yet, but there's a day coming when you'll have to drink it. The cup of which I'm to drink, that, that is imagery in the Old Testament um, of, of suffering and sorrow and sometimes even wrath. Like the, the, and many times the prophets say that a nation is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus says to James and John who are asking for a place of glory in eternity. And he says, are you able to endure the suffering the trial? Are you able to drink the cup of sorrow and pain that I'm to drink to glorify God in the face of great trial agony in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is sweating blood? He's so broken. Yet he prays, Father, if you will take this cup from me, but nevertheless, your will and not mine. And there's a place of, of worship a place of a real laid down love where the believer gets when he, in the face of suffering, sorrow, trial, agony, says, God, I'm going to obey you. I'm willing to drink the cup. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to persevere that you be glorified, that you be worshiped. Now, let's turn to James 1, verse 2 through 4. And we're reading essentially this morning uh, the introduction, which James is going to give us a little bit of a different introduction than it's typical for uh, the epistles. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And 
Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we return to, again to the epistle that James wrote. This is James the just, the younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And he opened by telling us that he's writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Peter used the idea of the tribes scattered among the nations and being called to as imagery for the church. 1 Peter 1, 1-2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. So, so Peter uses the idea of the dispersion of the 12 tribes of Israel being scattered as imagery for the, the elect, the church that is scattered amongst the nation. That could be what James is saying here. On the other hand, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is largely Jewish, and they're thoroughly ethnically Jewish at this point in history. Remember, again, we said that it's very likely that James's epistle is the earliest New Testament document, although that's de- debated. It's definitely one of the two earliest New Testament documents. At this point, Christians are not called Christians. Largely, they're, they're a sect of Jews. They're, it's a Jewish sect. And so um, they very much believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. They're not trying to start a new religion. They're claiming that Christianity is the fulfillment of Ju- the Jewish hope. So James opens his letter to the tribes in dispersion, and he doesn't open with a thanksgiving. It's very, like almost in every letter Paul writes, he opens with a, I thank God for you. There's some kind of encouragement, your testimony to the Thessalonians, uh, the whole world to the Romans. The whole world has heard your testimony, and the world's encouraged because of your faith. There's usually some kind of uplifting, positive encouragement that these letters are opened with. But instead, James opens with, count it all joy when you face trials. Now that's telling, okay? This is where you begin to use uh, literary context clues to form the occasion. A lot of times in the hermeneutics or interpretation, we talk about reading an epistle. It's, it's like hearing one side of a phone conversation. We don't have an explanation fully of what's happening in the church that James writes to, but we can put the pieces together. And when you write a letter and the first thing you say is, count it joy when you face trials, it's very likely that the people you're writing to are facing trials. And so um, we begin to put these clues together that these Jewish Christians are facing great Hardship. They may be facing financial hardship. It's very uh, much kind of agreed upon that the Jewish church struggled fiscally. The Roman world is growing in instability. Jerusalem is always this hot pot of political turmoil. Remember, it's just in AD 70 that Jerusalem will be burned to the ground. There is famine that Agabus prophesied in Acts chapter 11 that came to pass, we're told, in Jerusalem. It may be that this is the season where the church is facing famine. They may be struggling with food shortages. 
It may be that they're experiencing persecution. The church in Jerusalem definitely experienced persecution. Paul, for instance, is going to be continually drugged before magistrates and courts with false accusations. So it may be that there's this political accusation that the church is having to suffer through. We can't pin down exactly what trial they're in, but we can be sure that they're in trials. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And within a a household, a brother would rise up against father and mother, against husband. And within households, there would be family tension. There would be um, accusation. Brothers and sisters would, would be totally split because of this gospel. Now, these are Jews who are believing in Jesus. And there are other Jews who are calling them heretics. So you can imagine that even the familiar turmoil that these Christians are walking through as they claim Christ as their Savior. And James opens with a command. He's going to command them. Count it joy. Count it all joy. The phrase sometimes is translated, count it pure joy. Count it nothing but joy. When you face trials. Now that is the most. Almost oxymoronic statement in the natural. No one counts trials as joy. Yet James is commanding us as Christians. That when we face hardships. We should rise up with a supernatural confidence. And appreciation for the fact that God uses trials to shape us. What exactly are we counting as joy? Count it joy. What do I count as joy? Trials. He actually uses the phrase various trials. That means every type of trial. Different types, all types, every hardship. Nystrom, a scholar here, says that the Greek word for trials, it indicates an unwelcome unanticipated event. Interestingly, the the Greek word here for trial is actually where the word pirate is derived from. Have you ever watched these uh, these kind of documentaries about, uh, I watched one recently where a couple from the UK was on a boat, uh, on a, on a, on a, sailboat and they were kind of fulfilling all of their dreams uh when when pirates off the coast of africa come and take over their ship threaten their lives bring them in so the idea of of a pirate is uh you're you're not welcome you weren't anticipated you just showed up unannounced and took control of my life isn't that an interesting uh, development of So the idea of trial is unanticipated, unwarranted, unwanted events that show up in my life and bring me sorrow, suffering, hardship, persecution. They are surprise events, unwelcome events. When these surprise trials pop up in the life of a saint, we are commanded to rejoice. Where do the trials come from? We could ask, are are trials uh, from hell? Certainly they can be. Our enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
We live lives of spiritual warfare. There are trials that come from hell. But even in these hellish trials, we're taught scripturally, and, and you guys know me, I don't really care about your modern theological constructs, okay? The plain implication of the scriptures is that God is sovereign over all things. And so when Satan comes to attack Job, God could stop it at any moment if he wanted to. But God allows this trial in Job's life to sift him so that Job can offer worship. And, and so many times in our, in our modern theology, we have this idea that, 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 that God is out of control. God's not out of control of my life. I, I don't believe that God is the root of sickness, but I do believe that God stops sickness when and where he wants to stop it. And so there are times where we need to stand up and rebuke it, and we should in faith pray for healing. I, I will pray for healing over every sickness I believe we should. But when a believer has, has a disease that doesn't seem to break, that there are times where, where God could stop it if he wanted to, and it may be that he's shifting and molding things in our hearts as we suffer through it. And you could say, well, that's not my theological perspective. I don't care. It's the Bible's theological perspective. God, my, everything that touches my life, every sorrow, every trial, the depression, the anxiety, everything that frustrates me, everything that touches my life, it may not originate in, in the will of God, but it must pass through the hands of God. And he can stop whatever he wants to stop. Now, certainly at times God asks us to stand and rebuke the work of the enemy. But other times... God uses even the hard things in life to shape me. And I'm called to rejoice in the face of it. Why? So the first thing he says is, count it all joy. Rejoice in the face of various trials. Why would be the next question. Why should believers struggling with famine rejoice? Believers who are persecuted shout with praise. Believers who are experiencing plagues and sickness rise up with praise. Origin, a very controversial church father, said this, If you count it all joy when you fall into various trials, you give birth to joy and you offer that joy as a sacrifice to God. Now this is a very Job idea. When in the face of trials we rejoice, we bring God worship that is uniquely beautiful. Right? So Satan's accusation is that Job worships, he loves you because his life's very comfortable. Make him uncomfortable, then we'll see about his worship. And, and it's that, that same concept, whether we like it or not, exists in the life of a believer. When we're going through sickness and trial and hardship, and we're praying for healing and it hasn't come yet, and we look our children in the face and say, even in the face of cancer, Jesus is good to me. There is a worship that is uniquely beautiful in the nostrils of God. And you can resist it, you can cry, and you can moan, or you can lean into it and rejoice even in the face of calamity. Why do we rejoice in the face of hardship? He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here we slide into the real reason why we're supposed to rejoice in the face of trials. Because it produces something in us. When the fire is turned up in my life, I'm sifted. Now, I, uh, I've been praying for months, and I'm in the season of seeking God and praying, and I've been praying, God, purge me. God, purge me of everything that brings you displeasure. Anything in my life, God, that brings you displeasure, purge me of it. 
but I found myself praying recently, purge me of it, God, in a, in a, in a very nice way. <laughs> right? Like, I don't, and, and when we come to Christ, all of our guilt is done away with. In a moment, and I don't feel a lick of pain. Jesus wore the suffering for my guilt. When I come to Christ, all of my guilt is dealt with. Um, but there, there, there is pain in me. There is sorrow in me. There is arrogance in me. There are things in my soul that, although I'm not guilty for them, God's called me clean. Um, they still need to be cut out. And I don't know about you, but I actually know of no surgery that is painless. Right, and that that, that is very much. What happens when we walk with God? There, there is no, there is no time when God purges our hearts of sin, of 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 bitterness. There's, there's no such thing as God, God just pulling all the bitterness out of my life while I'm asleep, and then I wake up just pure and holy. Like God lays me on the operating table and says, "Sit still," and I flinch and I cry and I moan and I roll, and God says, "Lay still." And, and I'm, again, I'm praying. This is a true story. I'm praying, God, I do want you to rid this, uh, this stuff from my heart. But I don't want to feel it, okay? I want just, just do it. But God will allow situations, even, even leads you into relational trials. He will pull up situations in your life where all of a sudden the trauma from your past, the, the bitterness of your heart, the frustration, the places where you haven't forgiven yourself or you're holding bitterness against God. He'll allow situations in your life to cause all of those things to come up to the surface. And now when that happens in me, I say, stop! I don't like it. But, but, but on, we're talking out of two sides of our mouth because I've been praying for it for two years. Right? I've been praying, God, rid me of it. And so we have to recognize that that when James uses this imagery, he's talking about, um, you guys know this, silver or gold being purified. It requires heat and the flame. And God will allow trials to bring heat in your life so that the dross, so that, so that the things that bring him displeasure, so that the things that on the last day, when we stand before God, the things that you're embarrassed of, the things that you would you wish would have been done away with. He brings trials now in this life to cause those things to rise to the surface. Now we can resist it, we can roll around, we can cry, we can throw a fit, or we can rejoice that God loves us enough to deal with it in this season of life. In trials... I am forced, again, I I hate this, and so this is seriously an area of my life where I'm struggling. I am forced to face off with me. In trials, I am forced to stand off with the deepest, darkest places of me. When financial instability comes to you, maybe your business is falling apart, you're really struggling, that financial instability will force you to look your insecurity in the eye and decide whether or not you trust God or your ability to earn money. When you have financial instability, and we may get some more coming to our economy, you will be forced to stand off with your insecurity and to decide who is your provider. And in those moments of trial, when everything seems to be collapsing, 
I, I am forced to either rise up in faith and say, God, you are my provision, or to crumble and continue to live in my insecurity. Now, financial trouble comes and everyone bites their knees and, and we're all crying and rolling, but it may be an opportunity in joy to deal with the fact that we don't actually trust God yet the way we say we do. Standoffs with the darkest places of me. When sickness comes, when, when, when a disease comes, and again, we pray for healing, we will believe for healing until the last day, but when disease comes knocking at your door and it seems to not be breaking, you are forced to deal with the fear of death, the fear of hell. I am forced, we will be forced to look death in the face and rebuke any any sliver of unbelief that, that suggests that God doesn't love us. Any sliver of unbelief that suggests that the blood of Christ didn't really wash me of my sin. Any sliver of doubt that suggests that I don't really belong to the kingdom of heaven. When a husband faces sickness and maybe his, his kids are still young, he's forced to face any sliver of unbelief that suggests that his kids might not be cared for if he's unable to provide. Trial will force you to have a standoff with the darkest places in you. Forces me. And James commands you first to rejoice when that trial comes because the trial is an opportunity to be sifted unto the glory of God. So the text actually gave us two commands. Um, the first command was to rejoice. The second command is let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, I want to show you this in a few other places. I want to show you Paul giving the same idea and Peter giving the same idea because I want to develop this thought that is a New Testament construct. This is Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. So Paul rejoices in sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God loves us. And his love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul says, I will rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance, which produces character. Peter and 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you, listen to this, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here that we have a, a little trinity of New Testament authors, James, Peter, and Paul, all teaching us that we are in a process of being developed unto the glory of God. The, the apostles believed that we as saints are clay on the potter's wheel, and that we ought to rejoice in this truth, that we are clay in the hands of God. And when God begins to press us and shape us and mold us, we should shout with praise because we recognize that God loves us exactly where we are, but loves us enough not to leave us where we are. So for here, we actually slide into a bit of a theological debate, and I know you're very interested in it, and so here it comes. Um, 
the, uh, I'm trying to think of all the denominations that teach differently here. Uh, well, what I believe is called progressive sanctification. I believe a doctrine called progressive sanctification. That means throughout the life of a believer, you are growing in holiness. Now, there's a debate, uh, a, a quite a bit of debate, between other theological groups that believe in what's called instant sanctification. By instant sanctification, they mean that the moment you say yes to Jesus, sin no longer is your master. And so the moment a believer comes to faith, he doesn't have to obey a spirit of lust anymore. Now, I actually totally agree with that. And I think in this debate, we pass each other in the night. Because I do, I do believe if you have said yes to Jesus, sin is no longer your master. That doesn't mean that you're not allowing it to master you. It just means you don't have to. And so in instant sanctification, there's this, this teaching that every saint who says yes to Christ is totally delivered from, the, from, from having to be obedient to sin. And, and I actually agree with that. I, yeah, you are totally clean when you say yes to Jesus, and you are no longer bound to the, to the grip of sin. Now, I believe that every believer, after they say yes to Jesus, there's still some junk in here that although it doesn't have authority over you, is going to take some time to sort it out. And that, that's what I would call uh, progress, the progressive sanctification. That throughout my life, and this is very true for me in this season, that throughout my life, God seems to sift to the surface certain things that have always lying there, lying dormant, that I haven't yet dealt with. And I think that if God were to bring all of my issues to the surface in one scenario, I probably would just die. Okay, I probably would just roll over and die. But God in His graciousness, He sifts us season to season. That would be a, a progressive state of maturing. And so James here says, rejoice in your trials because we know that trials produce steadfastness and perseverance. And so James says that trials will mature me, will produce something in me. In other words, trials develop my character and my heart. Trials are making me a better servant of Christ Jesus. And I'm supposed to be glad So James says, rejoice is our first command. Our second command is to let perseverance rise up in us and crush all the doubt, all the insecurity, all the unbelief, all of our trembling and nail-biting and bitterness and backstabbing. Perseverance through hard seasons should rise up within us and crush everything in me that is, uh, exists in the realm of unbelief. God will use the trial to bring perseverance, which leads us to the last point that James really wants us to see, which is, again, that God is moving us towards maturity. The Holy Spirit, we were talking about this this week, the staff and I got away just to pray and talk, and we were talking some about what, what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the Lordship of the Spirit. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is, is not an it, he's a he. Okay, he's a, a person of the Trinity, and, and he is not this kind of superpower that charismatics pull out of their pocket to yield. Um, he is our God, our master, and the Spirit 
throughout the seasons of my life, he is leading me to paths of righteousness, is the way that David said it. He is developing me, maturing me, he's sifting me, molding me, making me into the vessel which he desires. He desires. He has desires for me. And I need to to yield to the lordship of the Holy Spirit, which is shaping me. And I very much have my own idea of what would be nice. Um, But part of saying to God, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, is saying, you are my master. I have my own idea of what would be comfortable and what would be a happy life, but I am sacrificing that on the altar, surrendering my own will, and asking you, Holy Spirit, to make me what would bring you the most pleasure. And I've prayed that for years, but when God actually begins to do it, (laughs) I tend to roll and crawl and throw a fit. So James is commanding us, the prayers, Holy Spirit, my life is yours. Make me whatever you will, whatever brings you pleasure. Those prayers require us to then rejoice when God brings or allows hardships to rise up in our life and sift us. The Holy Spirit has an aim for us, and we need to lean into his process. The word for completion, uh, ateleos, it means something having reached its end, something that's perfect or mature. So James said that we, uh, we should know that the testing of our faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect or mature or complete and lack nothing. God's aim in my life is that I come to a place of perf- perfect maturity, completion, and God is willing to make me uncomfortable or to put me on the surgeon's table to ensure that I reach his aim. The question that the text then thrust into our faces is, do we actually celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit and bringing us to completion Or have we been so tainted by the modern prosperity gospel which says that your life should be just really easy and comfortable and wealthy and healthy and prosperous? I I would encourage us just to take that whole doctrine and learn to hate it with all of our being because it actually rises up against the doctrine of the lordship of the spirit which says, I'll be poor, I'll be rich, I'll prosper, I'll suffer, I'll endure, I'll, I'll endure great hardship, or you can bless me. Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do with me, do it because I belong to you. That's the pure doctrine of the New Testament, not one that says the Holy Spirit must constantly keep me in a state of perfect peace. Now that leads us to really a big thrust of this text here. In that, James is saying, rejoice in trials because your temptation is going to be to point your finger at God and begin to pronounce him as a wrongdoer. Again, the entire narrative of Job, right? Will Job accuse God? Was it Satan's entire premise? Take away his comfort, take away his ease, and he'll spit in your face. So when James says, rejoice in your trials, he is saying, 
don't you dare point your finger at God and call him unfaithful simply because you're carrying around in your hearts unbelief and arrogance that needs to be purged. That's good preaching. I don't really care what you have to say. I guess we'll, we'll just kind of keep emphasizing this truth. That James, again, is known as James the Just. He's known as a man of holiness and righteousness and extreme character. And he is trying to teach his church and his people what it means to have a character in God. What it means to allow God to develop in us holiness and perseverance. The things that bring the Father pleasure. James is saying, don't resist God's processes of developing you to a place where you bring him pleasure. Now, I'm very prophetic, just utterly prophetic. That's a joke. Um, And in my prophetic gift, I want to prophesy to you with great accuracy that there are storms approaching our nation, okay? Um, That that doesn't take two licks of common sense, is my point. Um, (laughs) There's storms coming towards your life. Like, obviously, they, they happen. You're going to be faced with giants. None of you are going to have perfect health for the rest of your life. Like, at some point, some kind of sickness or disease is going to take you out. Um, we are going to have trials. And, and in our flesh, we're going to want to tremble and moan and groan and complain. But when we learn to rejoice in the trial... And let it crush everything in us that needs to be crushed. And look in the face of our children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbors. And say, yes, this season is rough, but I trust him. With all my life, I trust him. There is a beautiful worship and testimony that rises up. Now, from from here, uh, let's talk for 30 seconds about the concept of martyrdom. Which, um, I don't know, it was 10, 15, 20 years ago maybe a hundred years ago, just kidding, it was sometime in the last 50 years, where there was in the, in the name it, claim it movement, in the, in the word of faith movement, um, which I'm not a total critic of. I think there are some things in the word of faith movement that are good, um, but I'm obviously critical to an extent. In the word of faith movement, there were some people saying things like, um, if, if, if the martyrs of the early church had the faith that we have, they would have never been killed because they would have had the faith to endure. Um, that's actually disgusting. In the, in the eyes of the New Testament. Um, I don't know if you've read Revelation, but like the martyrs are honored under the altar. I don't know. Maybe. What do I know? Um, so the concept of martyrdom in the early church, um, Justin Martyr, for instance, uh, you get these stories of early church fathers longing for martyrdom because it became the greatest opportunity to testify to the goodness of God. They Not that they wanted it with a sick, twisted way, but they would say... To, to go to the stake and to allow fire to consume your body and to still say, I love Jesus. That is the greatest expression of worship and evangelism and testifying that a saint could ever experience. And so they, they sometimes long for martyrdom. Um, and, and a lot of times they always honored the martyrs as heroes of the faith. And, and that's because they matured to the place of even not allowing the physical flame to cause them to turn back in unbelief. And when the nations tremble, when our nation has the next 
great stirring of drama and financial issues and whatever that's sure to come sooner or later. Um, many in the church will, will cry and roll and throw a little tantrum. But those who stand up and say, my faith is in Jesus, period. And I refuse to allow my outward circumstances to crush what's in me. Because God has been developing something in me over the years. Those people will have a unique opportunity to, to worship and to witness. Which should be the greatest desire of your life. To worship and to witness. James tells us to rejoice in our shaping. Rejoice in our trials. Learn to persevere. Because God is developing us into exactly what he desires. We cannot pray, God, use me. We can't pray, God, make me a vessel. We can't pray, God, be pleased with my life. And then turn around and get on the operating table and squirm and wiggle and cry. Rejoice. Rejoice in trials. Rejoice. Let's pray over the word and we'll step into a time of ministry. So, Father, in in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask that you would mark us to be a people of faith, Lord. We want to be a people of faith who stand and believe for healing, who always stand and believe for deliverance. Lord, when the enemy comes to attack, we ask that you would give us the, the faith to stand and rebuke. Lord, but in the seasons where you're allowing trials to press us, we ask that you would teach us to rejoice. Lord, may our prayer purge me, may our prayer cleanse me, may our prayer shape me, be sincere. May it be sincere in me, Lord. Lord, we want from our lives all of your plans and desires and wishes. We are not our own masters. Would you use us in the name of Jesus, we pray. And all the saints say amen.